0: Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burn. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How about you, my friend? I'm going to ask you to collect yourself for this conversation <laughs> we're about to have. But first, this is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Burn with my co-host and cohort Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by global toy experts, The Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency Chiscom and. The collecting mention was indeed a joke because we are joined by Christian Braun of HobbyDB, the Hobby Database, and we're going to talk about hobbies and collectibles. And Christian, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Christian, tell everybody about HobbyDB if they don't know already.
2: All right. So HobbyDB is meant to be the natural extension to Wikipedia, meaning we will eventually have every collectible ever made listed on the site. So you can find out what exists, how much it's worth. You can add it to your collection. You can add it to your wish list, and get notification if somebody else wants to sell one. You can buy and sell and soon also trade.
1: And what constitutes a collectible as far as DB is concerned?
2: The definition is quite simple. It's all based on volunteers. We have about 2,000 people that add items to the system. So if somebody deems an item worthwhile adding, then by default for us, it's a collectible.
1: So we know that toys, certain toys, are
2: collectibles.
1: What about, will your site include comic books? Yes. Uh, Will it it include toys?
2: we have the, our, our tagline says, over 100 billion collectibles, eventually. Wow. <laughs> eventually, is, <laughs> eventually, somewhat important, but we are slowly making our way there. And basically what we try to do is complete a section. And often we're also the official archive. We host 55 official archives, Funko, Maisto, Kid Robot, other companies where we have everything. And that includes not just the product that they sell, but also brochures, prototypes, anything that a collector would want to get his hands on. Popular culture
1: collectibles over the last decades have become hugely popular. What about classic collectibles like artwork, coins, stamps? Uh, are you in that area too, or strictly popular
2: culture? no. Uh, everything and basically the idea is to get into a segment and have it complete so for example last year we added a database of valiant comics and that's also how often we work we work with a company or with somebody who's already written a book or created a website and likes the idea of what we're doing and wants to become part of it so uh, there was a fan uh, website called Valiantfans.com. It had every Valiant comic, and now they're with us. Uh, we are just in the process of bringing over about 120,000 Roman and Roman provincial coins. Ah. Get out. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so then we'll have a good base there. We're talking to somebody in Germany who's a big carpet collector, uh, we're, we're doing some porcelain stuff. So literally anything. We started with a Hot Wheels database. We brought in 22,000 Hot Wheels. Now we've got about 52,000 Hot Wheel items in the database. And then Pop Culture started with uh, the addition of Pop Price Guide, which was a Funko website. Uh, we've added there 16,000 items. Now we have about 26,000 Funko products. And from there, we're into action figures, comics, and so on and so forth. So tend to be... A th- Theme around it and then extend on that theme.
0: And it's interesting because collecting is a human passion. It really is something that people have done for years. I, I was thinking about in the beginning of the 19th century, Staffordshire pottery was hugely successful. My grandmother and grand collected Hummel figures. Today's people collect action figures and Funko. And, and I'm just I'm curious as to any insights you're having about the growth of collecting in our current culture.
2: In general, every collectible item has its life cycle. You've got that pattern where it goes up and then it goes down. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, it can also be going up and staying for a long time. There is uh, something that's important for any collectible that eventually will have to do, which is the generational jump. It needs to go from the generation that started with it to the next one. Take Hot Wheels. You know, the 1968 to 1971 they kind of red lines. they kind of consider the shiny objects. You know, they have these amazing specter flame colors. You don't have to play with them as a child to like them going forward. I'll give you an example on the other side that didn't work is model buses. In the UK, where I lived for a long time, uh, if you were born in the 50s and 60s, you would go on vacation on a bus. A lot of people collected buses in the UK. But the new generation hasn't had that. They were flying to Ibiza or they were flying somewhere. So they didn't think a bus is a cool thing and they didn't want to collect buses. So bus collection doesn't make the generational jump. And then there's other factors. Model Kits is a good example. Model Kits has a real problem making the generational jump because it does require a lot of time. Mm. We don't seem to have time for that. So I, I would predict that Model Kits will have problems in that regard.
0: I'm curious about the generational jump, because I, I do think that's important. We've seen it happen in Barbie, Hot Wheels, you mentioned when it makes a generational jump, does the audience shrink? Is there sort of an inverted pyramid of the size of audience when it makes a generational jump, or does some event have to happen to make it relevant again?
2: The generational jump can happen for various reasons. And the, and the important is also, is there new stock coming into the market? Take. Baseball cards, you know, I mean, they uh, they've made the generation jump once or twice. Then it totally failed in the eighties, nineties, because the companies got it wrong. They overcooked it. There were way too many items done, and there was a a accounting scandal. So interest in baseball cards totally waned. Uh, But it came up the last two or three years, and it had. A momentum. It had a moment in time where I think you can pinpoint saying this is when it when the fortune of trading cards changed. It was the uh, Michael Jordan movie that came out. Uh, everybody went and looked, and where's my rookie cup of Michael Jordan? Wow! Uh, so prices in that segment in the last two years have gone through the roof, and they've attracted new blood into the hobby. A lot of new kids and young people got into it and started buying these, and that's what you need. You, you know, there's the handing over what was made in the past to a new generation, but that's not really of interest to anybody in the industry. You want to make sure that you can also sell new stuff. Uh, Moto is a good example, right? Um, Masters of the Universe, I mean, or Transformers, where you now get into the second generation. Can you get new kids to come in and buy the stuff?
1: Focusing in on the toy industry for just a minute, I have often wondered The role that active toy companies have in either helping or hindering collectability. I'll give you a couple of examples. Think of Ty, which consciously, uh, I'm going to use the word manipulated. I don't mean it negatively, but manipulated the collector market by running short runs of product, creating demand artificially. And which you just kind of inferred with baseball cards kind of turns collectors off. So can you speak to what role active companies have in maintaining collectability and do they have a responsibility to maintain it?
2: Well, I mean, their responsibility is shareholders. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think take, take Hot Wheels. It's, it's about 80 percent of the items sold will go to children, 20 percent to collectors. And, and as a company, you want to make sure two things, you want to make sure that you, you stay as long as possible with that future collector, because really what you want to do is you want that child to become a, you know, a grown grownup that, that still likes that past and collects that past, right? So your uh, lifetime value comes in the mother of the child buys now, and then later what that collector buys, which may be a much, much larger number. Uh, one in seven Americans is a collector of some kind. So I think it's an important market. And if you if you sell to collectors directly, you need to consider what I call the need for completion. Uh, the need for completion is something that is hard to understand from an outside perspective, which is as a collector, I want everything of something or I'm going into a subsegment, And those are important breakpoints. Give you an example, there's a German company, it's called Herpa. They made uh, model cars. Uh, well, prior to that, there was another company called Viking. They made model cars and they made 13 models every year. And I remember I bought them I mean, with my brother. Uh, and they left money on the table because they could have done more. Then this other company emerged and they made, they, uh, they did a small series of six cars every two months. So we started buying those and um, everybody's happy. Um, There was still enough demand and new people came into the hobby. Then they made trucks and we collected those too. Uh, Then they did their first advertising model and it was in Hamburg, I'm German. And, you know, a lot of people traveled to Hamburg to pester this company to give them this advertising model. Uh, And you could complete, you could still collect complete. Then... They were doing advertising model in Munich and Berlin, and it became impossible. So people had to make a decision getting out of their hobby, collecting just the cars or collecting the trucks. And that's what a lot of people did. They collect the trucks or the cars. As I said, there is this innate need to have everything of whatever your chosen theme is. And if you can't do that, then a lot of people consider if they want to collect at all. So I think that's always important as a company to keep in mind. I mean, take Funko, for example. Initially, they collected every Funko Pop, too many. Uh, Funko did 6,000 products last year, about 3,500 Funko Pops. You can't buy all of those. So a lot of people said, okay, I'll collect the Star Wars ones, or I collect the Marvel ones. You need to give people that outlet where they still can have everything of something.
0: If a manufacturer is looking at attracting the collector market, what do they need to pay attention to? As they develop the product,
2: think very carefully of packaging. I'll give you two examples. So, when uh, Hot Wheels started uh, the blue line, they put numbers on them one of 250, two of 250, and so on and so forth. And that had a huge impact on people. Uh, you know, men were going down into the man cave with 250 nails and hammering 250 nails in the wall. <laughs> And then they started putting number six in place, number eight and number five, but there was a gaping hole at seven, and they tried everything to get number seven. That's powerful. I mean, I always tell collectible companies what you gotta do is people know what they have and they're happy with it. You gotta tell them what they don't have, so that they that they want to get into this completeness. That I mentioned earlier, drive for completeness. That's what you really want to achieve. The other thing that uh, I think is very, very clever, and I talk about Funko again because they've got a lot right in the last 10 years, is their box is so amazingly uh, versatile. Every time I have a call with somebody who collects a Funko, I can see a wall of items behind them, like six level high, and they do research how high can you pack them? And there's there's little support things that you can put in the wall to put more in because they all have that wall behind them. And, and they love that fact. You know, they want to cover the whole wall. So if you can make your packaging something that also helps display the items, then that helps enormously as well. I
1: want to talk to you a minute about Beanie Babies. Here you had the Thai company, which was holding on to a tiger for dear life and it ended up collapsing. Could they have managed that process differently? So, of course, it would have declined, but it might not have collapsed.
2: Well, yes, they could have. I mean, first of all, there are specific things to uh, Taiwan, uh, uh, and then there's, there's generic stuff that any company can do. Specifically to Thai, do not publish a bear that says this is the end. That was just such a bad idea. And then they changed their mind and tried to come back, but it was too late. So that's specific to them. The other one is when you sell to collectors, there's always two values you have to keep in mind. There is the value of the product, and then there is the investment value. If you take a sideshow collectible statue, that can be an $800 item. If you come home with that, tends to be guys, uh, you know, you have to be able to look at your girlfriend or your wife uh, or even yourself in the mirror and say, hey, this is an investment. I can get that money back. If you buy a mainline Hot Wheel at 99 cents, that's what I call coffee money. That's consumption. You, that That's okay. It doesn't have to go up in value. But if you buy an $800 item, then you need to believe that you can get that money back, even if you never want to sell the item. That belief is important. And if that goes away... Then you stop paying that much money, then you go down to fifty dollars versus eight hundred dollars. So for brands that sell high value items, it's very, very important that that perception this is an investment stays. Once that goes, then there's a rush to the door, and then everything is gone. You know and that's kind of what happened with these brands. When the first people tried to sell their beanie baby collections, and they didn't get any close to what they thought they would get they never really panicked and then it's over
0: one of the tactics it seems that a manufacturer can do is not advertise the end but advertise a limited edition so that you're going to get it at a, in a certain window and then it's not going to be made anymore so for the collector it's automatically going to start to appreciate in value one of the areas i'm seeing that happen is in Playmobil with their ghostbusters stuff which they made for a year year and a half it's not in the line anymore. So now it's trading fairly quickly at higher prices online.
2: Yeah, well, the same as Lego, right? I mean, you you buy a Lego Star Wars set, particularly at the higher end, you know you're going to make money for quite a while. Um, but important here is to make sure things sell out. What you also want to avoid is what keeps you on the right side of legality, but seems wrong for collectors. Give you an example, Steif did a limited edition of teddy bears. You know, there were 700 Deutsche Marks at the time, which was a lot of money, called the Titanic Bear. It's black, and it was apparently on the Titanic. And they did that, I believe, in 10 inches. And it sold out in a really nice presentation box, and then it went up in value. And then three years later, they did that same bear, either an 8 or 11 inches, I forgot. But it was different. It was a different scale. But collectors felt cheated, And you want to avoid that.
1: When we get into a company like Mattel that produces Barbie, do they have a financial benefit from collectability? Should the collector market be part of a business plan and a market plan?
2: I think it should be. And I think you need to, I think the toy industry in general brings in Young, smart, MBA type people that may have worked for another fast moving consumer good before. And that works, I think, very well for children, you know, for children toys. Uh, it doesn't work so well in the collectors market. So I often find that you want to have a slightly different team composition. You want to have somebody in the team that understands collectors and can talk on their behalf. Give you another example, Hornby the UK um, company that owns Airfix and Corgi and so on and so forth, I think had a lot of problems in the collector market because there's always pressure to reuse the casting. So uh, Corgi for a long time relied on the Mini and the Jagger E-Type, but they've lost the collector's market because collectors were moving on. A, everybody had those many, many times, and B, people wanted 80 cars. They wanted golds and, and Ford Granadas and so on and so forth, things that they had seen when they were children and not things that their father was seeing when they when he was a child. And that kind of got lost because, obviously, you have to make an investment to make a new casting. So I think it's important to understand if you want to sell to collectors, you need to have somebody on the team that has that perspective and has ways into the community and can... Can alert the rest of the team saying, Yeah, I get that. You know, we, we cost $150,000 to do new casting, but we've got to do two or three of those a year. Otherwise, we'll just become stale and people move on. Just to finish with the Hornby example, there was an employee at Coggy Toys that started Oxford Diecast, made that a collector's brand very successfully. And now he's a new CEO of Hornby. So it went all the way around, and he has that perspective. And that's, I think, why Hornby has made much better products and better inroads back into the collector's markets.
0: And Mattel has, for years, leaned in significantly to the collector's market. It's a whole separate area for them. It's a whole different division. They have a different finish on the doll. They have beautiful packaging. They've worked with designers. They do a lot at different price points for collectors. With Mattel, at least, they've embraced the totality of who the Barbie consumer is, from four up until ageless, really.
2: Now Hasbro was probably the first with Hasbro Direct that really made inroads into that market, and now you know everybody's on it. Jada has a direct arm. Uh, Mattel has their direct products. The secret to sell directly is to collectors is you got to sell that stuff out. You want to make sure that people can't procrastinate. You want to ensure that people think, if I don't buy this now, then it's not going to be available and I have to go to the secondary markets and buy it there. In that perspective, you have to leave money on the table. And that's very hard for companies to do. There's this really difficult conversation internally, how much can I do to fulfill the demand that's out there, but that I don't do too much?
0: It seems like, though, there are multiple levels of collectors, just as there are multiple levels of toy people. There's the serious collector who wants that completion, who build the Funko wall. And then there's the collector who just wants to have them because they're fun. That's who they're going for because they're looking for the short-term revenue
2: interesting general trend where collectors don't necessarily consider themselves collectors anymore. Uh, they, they buy stuff and they may have done 50, 100 purchases last year, but they don't think of themselves as a collector because that's an old-fashioned term now. That kind of arcs back to the Hummel that we talked about earlier. What companies will have to do is make sure they don't produce too much and every t- and, and consider breakpoints natural breakpoints what can if we make too much, what can our audience specialize in and still give them that feeling that they have a complete collection
1: When a company comes out with a limited run, let's say I'm running a thousand do I ethically have to release all 1000 to the public or can I as a manufacturer hold say a hundred bags? and then feed them into the market once the aftermarket goes up.
2: There's two things, right? There's, are there ethical questions around it? Well, that depends on what you tell the people. And then secondly, are there perceived to be ethical issues around it? I'm gonna tell you that's definitely a yes. If people figure out that you keep 100 items behind and sell them in the secondary market, they're gonna be very unhappy. It may still work, but there's definitely going to be a lot of you know discussion about it. In fact, even if you don't do that, people suspect this kind of stuff all the time, particularly if you're a smaller company.
1: I'm a big fan of Antiques Rocha. They will run reruns of shows, say, from the 90s, and they will give you the valuation then and the valuation now. And I would say in 90% of the cases, the valuation is lower now. Is that because uh, it's television and when they make these valuations, they shoot high? Or is it that most things tend to erode in value over time?
2: We're coming back to the generation jump. So has has this particular type of item got a new audience, first of all? And secondly, is this some of the rarest and best condition item in that particular area. Take, take Merklin trains. Trains are in decline. If you've bought items every year of Merklin over the last 100 years in the 90s or in the 80s, you will have lost money by now. But if you've specialized in only the most rarest items and the best conditions, you still be in the money. So I think it depends on what it is. If it's uh, a more common item, it's something that was collected a lot, take Humboldt, but yet you definitely have a lot of, love, you've lost a lot of value. If it's something that's very rare in that area, you can still have something that has a really nice value. I mean, even in Beanie Babies, they are, I think we have a list of 14 or 15 valuable Beanie Babies that still have value.
0: All right, Christian, we're going to ask you the question we're asking everybody in season four of the Playground podcast. What was your favorite play experience as a child?
2: I, I did like Lego a lot, but uh, probably my most favorite was um, I, I had figures, uh, Toy Soldiers and, and figures. I had about 6,000 of them, I think. You started as a collector early. <laughs> yes, I did. I did. Uh, I, I started when I was six years old. My brother, uh, who's older, said, hey, you get the Toy Soldiers because I get the cars. So he got the cars. He's written 20 books on it. He run the journey. Yeah. He was e-commerce at Audi. For him, it was great. He still has 50,000 model cars. Oh my I got the Toy Soldiers. I played with them. I sold them when I was 10. Then I bought them back when I was 12. <laughs> I became a collector. And then I became a dealer. I was 15. I was I was uh, traveling through Germany buying old shop stock and selling it to a mailing list. So um, yes, I've been in this for quite a while.
0: It's wonderful. We love hearing about this because it really is we can always trace the roots to what you're doing today back to back to those play experiences as a child. So Christian Braun of Hobby DB, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. We really appreciate hearing about it. It's important information for manufacturers who are looking at the collector's market as an important business opportunity. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the End Cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the End Cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are related to the toy industry and are top of mind right now. And Richard, our friends at Spielvar and Mesa have come out with a survey about plastics. And for all the things that have been going on in the industry, this could be one of the most significant changes. You just wrote an article about it. What's going on with that?
1: Uh, there's a, a couple of things I address in your article. Actually, I'm, I'm going to triangulate three things, Chris. The first thing is when we did our survey of the industry, we found that concerns among the industry about plastics and green, you know, ecologically based plastics, uh, was very low. The concern was one of the lowest recordings we got, what was really high, of course, was concerns about inflation and the supply chain. But it seemed like even though the toy industry is rightly concerned about these big issues of inflation in the supply chain, that the industry is missing a significant piece is that children and their families, are deeply concerned. And this comes out, I think, in the spielberg Mesa green survey, which we're going to go into in just a second. The third piece to this is the United Nations is considering a cap on the production of petroleum-based plastics.
0: That could be very intense. So let's, let's start with the survey because your survey talk to people in the industry but this survey talked to consumers and that's something we've been hearing which is that sustainability and ecological responsibility are very important to especially the emerging uh, zennials.
1: Well let me talk to you a minute about the uh, structure of this survey. I, I was impressed Chris they they interviewed uh, roughly 2800 families with children, that I believe, were under 10 years old. And what they did was they roughly 400 interviews in Italy, each in Italy, the US, Germany, China, the UK, Spain, and France. So it is an international look at what are family opinions. And one of the, uh, I think, more interesting elements that came out of this was that 62% of families felt that concerns around toys and sustainable plastics is is here to stay. It's not a passing fad. And that they are willing to pay more for a product that is sustainable. All this made me think about those two little girls in the UK that began a petition to have Burger King stop producing plastic toys in their kids' meals. And they got an overwhelming number of responses, and Burger King got out of the plastic toy business. We need to pay attention to this because to complete the triangulation, we may have no choice down the road if the UN gets the countries to agree to cap plastics production, because our use of plastic is low on the totem pole, and if there is any kind of rationing, we're going to come at the end of the line. So we have to work on getting recycled plastics and bioplastics into the uh, stream of materials.
0: I agree, and. Obviously, Green Toys was a leader in this with their corn-based plastics. I know that Fisher-Price had looked at sugarcane-based plastics. Lego has looked at that as well. My question about those kinds of renewable plastics is, what is the process of production of those as well, since you have to grow the sugarcane and grow the corn, and, and what environmental impact will those have? Because there is nothing that is free from environmental impact. I also thought one of the things you cited was the materials that consumers considered sustainable, wood in in declining order, wood, bamboo, recycled plastic, bioplastic, paper, cotton, cork, and natural rubber. All of those have at one point or another been used in the toy industry. And it may be a time to be rethinking design to get out ahead of this. What do you think of that? I think you make a
1: very good point because it really does all start with design. And our industry rightfully fell in love with plastic. It was moldable. It was malleable. It was inexpensive. It was brightly colored. And so we designed to that material. I wonder how much our design community thinks in terms of alternative materials when they design. When I was a kid, things made there. My toy guns were made of metal and steel and, and a lot of other materials, tin, other than plastic. So there are other materials out there. It's just we need to begin designing two alternative materials. It's a very good point you make.
0: Well, it's interesting. I think they're still under embargo, so I'm not going to mention the company or the product. But I have seen toys coming for 2022 that are made out of cork and wow. they are fairly rudimentary toys overall, but they are gorgeous and, and they've done a great job with them and they're very tactile. And I, I think that we already have companies that are, that are looking for this and looking for alternatives. We've seen a growth in paper. We've seen a growth in, and certainly in bamboo the last time that we were in Nuremberg, there was a whole area devoted to, to green toys there. So I think it's, it's something that's coming and it's something that we need to be paying attention to.
1: One other element in here in the survey that it says, what is important when buying toys? And they asked people to, to rate it from one to five. And the highest rating was product quality and the next highest was fun. So product quality came out ahead of fun. And then in the top six reasons that they were resistant and durable, stimulate learning, encourage family play, and the play concept. So it seems that fun, which is the business we think of ourselves in, may not be the business we really are in. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I think I think fun has to underlie everything because you're not going to give so, a child a toy that they don't think is fun. But I think when you're when you're looking at priorities and especially consumers who want to be responsible and who are concerned about the fate of the planet, then then materials do figure into that, and and there has been a movement towards buying secondhand toys, which has all those safety issues that are attached to that. But there has been a reduce, reuse, recycle movement that's just only going to get stronger, especially as these zennials continue to have kids?
1: Well, let me just run this idea by you. Is it possible that as the toy industry has grown to include adults as and as we've ac- accepted adults as having a right to play As parents have become more concerned about education, is it possible that the ground is shifting under us and play has gotten more serious and we're in a more serious business than maybe we were a decade or two ago?
0: I think that's a fascinating concept, and it's one that we're going to have to watch as it evolves. But... The whole idea is pay attention to this changing industry because it is changing and there are factors changing that that need to be considered. And especially if rationing or reduction becomes mandated by governments, those companies that are ready to pivot as we've seen during the pandemic are the ones that are gonna to continue to be successful. Agree. So more to be discussed on this. I think it's a fascinating topic. You can read all about this at Global Toy News. For now, I am Chris Byrne with my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. This is the Playground Podcast. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. If you like these episodes, we certainly hope you'll share them with others, and we look forward to you tuning in next time.